This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Recently, the Supreme Court of the United States issued a very significant decision known as Obergefell. In that 5-4 ruling, writing for the majority, Justice Kennedy argued that same-sex marriage is protected under the 14th Amendment, which was ratified after the American Civil War to guarantee the rights of those whose freedom had been won in that Civil War. There were several strongly worded dissenting opinions, however, in Obergefell, issued by four of the justices. So, however settled the law may be for now, the debate continues even on the Supreme Court. Obergefell is likely to have ramifications for the way Christians live in a largely non-Christian society, how they conduct business, how schools operate, and even what churches are free to do. Here to help us understand how the court reached its decision and how we ought to think about it is Dr. David Vendrunen, the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. He is the author of, co-editor of, and contributor to several books, including Living in God's Two Kingdoms. This, with other faculty titles, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. This is part one of a two-part interview with Dr. Vendrunen. Hi, David, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. Well, it's been an interesting summer as we've been digesting several Supreme Court rulings, but I think we're here to discuss one in particular, the Obergefell decision. So help us get oriented here. What did the majority say, and why did the majority say it? On what assumptions, for example, were Justice Kennedy and the rest of them proceeding and maybe discuss how they read the Constitution of the United States. I could probably take up just about the entirety of this program trying to describe that. Let me begin just by saying, and I hope this is clear to those who are listening, that I'm not an expert on constitutional interpretation or Supreme Court jurisprudence. I do have a law degree, and I am a licensed attorney. I do have considerable interest in legal theory, but I just want to make clear that this is more reflections than it is expert analysis. Having said that, as I'm sure everyone knows, what this decision did is to declare a fundamental constitutional right of homosexual couples to marry. And the main constitutional hinges upon which the decision was reached was through the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clauses of the 14th Amendment. The question then arises, since the 14th Amendment doesn't say anything remotely related to homosexual marriage, how do you get that out of those provisions? Okay, so if we think about the Due Process Clause, what the Due Process Clause says is essentially that The government can't take away your life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. In other words, it's saying that if government wants to take away Scott Clark's life, liberty, or property, it can do that, but it can only do it by going through a process, by going through legal processes. It can't do it in a Kafkaesque kind of way. And the equal protection essentially says that no person should be denied the equal protection of the laws of the country. Now, basically what Justice Kennedy and the four justices that joined him, they're saying that these provisions implicitly now are understood to grant this fundamental right to homosexual couples to marry. And even though that's never been the way that 
the Constitution has been read, and obviously it's not what the text says. There's something here of what is sometimes referred to as the living Constitution idea, which is basically that the Constitution is a document whose meaning changes over time to meet the social needs and circumstances of every era. I think there's also something going on here related to a very influential legal theorist of the last generation, Ronald Dworkin. Dworkin has argued that he was an originalist. In other words, is that what the drafters of these constitutional amendments were doing in a lot of instances were giving these general principles and then basically leaving it to later judges to determine what these principles meant. So cruel and unusual punishment. Well, they could have defined what exactly they thought was cruel and unusual punishment and what wasn't, but instead they gave us a general principle. And so basically every generation needs to make a judgment about what that means. I think what's going on here. There's nothing in the Constitution itself which talks about gay marriage, but as these justices are using, as they put it, their reasoned judgment, as they are trying to, as Justice Kennedy puts it, to gain a better informed understanding of how constitutional imperatives define a liberty that remains urgent in our own era— And as they do things like look at psychological studies that show that homosexual behavior is normal, as they look at homosexual couples who feel derided or degraded because they don't get to marry. That was a really important part. Yes, that's right. The majority opinion. That's right. So they're looking at all these things and they are then making this reasoned judgment that the 14th Amendment through these clauses grants this right. Now, I think one of the things that I believe it was Justice Alito said in his dissent, he made a comment that this is very postmodern. And I think ultimately, yes, it really is in the sense that there's a basic sense of defining reality the way we want to. And ultimately, what it comes down to is that five justices of the Supreme Court think that there ought to be this recognition of a fundamental right. And so they asserted it. And I think it's important to just, you know, maybe one more thing on Justice Kennedy, who was the author of this opinion, which the four other justices also signed. Back in a pretty famous case in the early 90s, the Casey decision, which had to do with abortion, Justice Kennedy made a fairly famous statement. He said that at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That's of the essence of liberty. Which is pretty radically subjective. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But I think you can see that that same spirit is coming through here. Basically, liberty means you can define the world the way you want to define the world. And Justice Kennedy made a statement in this recent case where he talks about a liberty that includes certain rights that allow persons to define and express their identity. So here again, you can see it's a little different way of saying it, but it's getting at the same point. A basic liberty that all people have to define their own meaning of life. And when you're working with that kind of concept, then I think you can begin to understand how you get a decision like the one we saw this summer. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And then on the other side, you have justices saying, wait a minute, there are lots of objections to this way of proceeding. For one... As a matter of history, even though, for example, and I'm not saying that any of the justices argued this in detail, but this is a novel definition of marriage or a radical redefinition of marriage. Even pagans, ancient pagans, for example, the Romans may have permitted something like civil unions, didn't define marriage 
in this way. Marriage in the West or in the ancient world has never been defined this way. In fact, as late as 1973, the American Psychiatric Association listed homosexuality, now not talking about marriage, but just the practice of homosexuality, as a mental illness so that it was widely regarded as uh, sort of a psychological dysfunction. And now, not only do you have a right to be a homosexual, but you have a right to redefine marriage. It's a remarkable turn of events. So here's the question. Is this decision as radical as it seems? And if it is, how radical is it? I think it depends on whether you take a longer-term view or a shorter-term view. Yeah. I think you could argue on a shorter-term basis that it's not that radical and that it continues a kind of way of looking at the Constitution and looking at law in general that we've been seeing growing and developing. I mean, I think you can see a lot of the same ideas in the abortion decisions in Casey, which I mentioned in Roe Before It, where you're basically finding rights in the Constitution that are clearly not on the face of it, but yet have to be in some way read into it on the basis of this kind of enlightened insight into life. And so in that sense, it's not radical in that it continues a trajectory that I think has already been established. I think if we take a longer term view, then I think it very much is a radical decision. And I say when I think about a longer term view, I'm thinking about the long Anglo-American legal tradition, which is a very remarkable tradition in so many ways. But I think one of the things that marks that tradition, and perhaps you could maybe argue this is one of the very most important things, is the idea that we're ruled by laws rather than men. And of course, that gets very complicated as to what that actually means and how that gets worked out. But there's this conviction that when judges are ruling in cases, that they are to discover the law, they're to find the law, and they're not to make the law. Again, very complicated as to what that means on the ground. But when you look at this case that we're talking about, there isn't really much effort to find the law, to discover the law, a sense that there is a law that objectively exists. This is much more a postmodern assertion of will that this is how we are going to understand reality, or at least this is how we're going to let people define reality. And there just really isn't any way to see this as in some way a discovery and ruling upon the law that actually exists. And so in that sense, I think it is very much out of accord with the broader Anglo-American legal tradition, but it's not as if this just came out of nowhere. And so that's why I think it depends whether you're taking a shorter or longer term view. And there's competing definitions then of what it means to consider original intent, right? Yes. And so this gets back to your earlier mention of Ronald Dworkin. Does original intent mean what the founders intended? In other words, do we look at what the language meant when it was used, for example, cruel and unusual punishment? That almost certainly would have included, for example, being drawn and quartered. That was the kind of thing that they were thinking about in the 18th century, because those are the kinds of things that had been done in Europe before the founding of the New World in the New Republic. Today, we're arguing about whether giving somebody the right cocktail of drugs so that they don't have any sensation at all as they die constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. So we're not really asking ourselves, well, when this language was adopted by the founders, what did it mean? 
And so these are two sort of radically different definitions of what it means to consider original intent. And this is something the listener can understand easily. Just think about how he understands his Bible, right? When you pick up a text, you don't ask, well, this is an interesting phrase. How should I receive this phrase in my current context and define it? We ask, no, when Paul says X, what did it mean in the first century in his original context? So it's not as if there isn't a fairly well-established approach to reading texts in their original context. That's true, although at the same time, I would not want to go on record as saying that this is a very easy, simple debate. I think there are a lot of very subtle and nuanced debates about how to interpret a constitution. And of course, as you know, you wouldn't deny that whereas the scriptures are inspired and God inspire them to be written for the purpose that we even here today in the early 21st century would be reading them and spiritually profiting from them. The authors of constitutional amendments and of all sorts of other laws are not infallible. And so, for example, I'm not a big fan of the way that Justice Scalia always approaches. He takes a very positivist view of law, and I don't know if you want to talk about his or the other dissents. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Yeah, please. I think that because those dissents, I think, are important because it's quite possible that those dissents could become as influential in some ways in future as the majority opinion is now. It's possible. I mean, I think I would say that the main theme that comes across in the dissents, and just by the way, all four of the justices that didn't sign the main opinion, they all wrote their separate dissents, and Scalia and Thomas signed those of the others as well. So there wasn't just one approach or one thing that they were all saying, but probably the theme that comes out most strongest, and this is certainly true of Justice Roberts and especially of Scalia, is that basically this is a usurpation of the prerogative of legislatures to define and regulate marriage. In other words, the Constitution doesn't say anything about this. It leaves it in the hands of the legislatures. Now, if you look at Scalia's dissent, he says something to the effect of what our definition of marriage is, is not really of any great concern to me. And he was more interested in process. That's right. I mean, what he did say is that what I'm really concerned about is who rules me. And basically, it's the democratic process that ought to be making these decisions. Now, on a technical point of law, I think that that theme is right. I mean, the regulation of marriage laws is something that the legislatures, uh, rather than the courts, ought to be determining. But even in saying that, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. I don't personally think that it's encouraging to hear one of the Supreme Court justices say that it's not really of any concern to him what our laws of marriage are. I personally think that's not exactly true. And Justice Scalia is a textualist. He's an originalist, the way you were talking about. But there's this very strong sense that the laws simply are what the legislature says it is. 
And I'm concerned that that doesn't give a full account of what law is, that there's more to law than just what Congress says or just what the state legislature says. And that actually is part of the broader Anglo-American tradition that I've been talking about. Which gets back to things like common law. That's right. And behind that, a sense that there is something that we've long described in the Western tradition, though from a variety of points of view, as natural law. That's right. The common law, very, very important, a kind of an unwritten customary law that's been extremely important for the development of the English and now the American political traditions. Can you give us some examples of the way common law might function? How might people recognize common law? Well, basically, common law was a law that was never originated in parliament or in Congress. Common law was a law that was built up over centuries of time as courts wrestled with real-life concrete cases and were seeking to do justice in these cases and developed rules and practices and ideas that were understood to be that which governed the concrete practical common life of the people of the realm. And the common law liberties that were recognized over time were very, very important at the time of the American founding, for example. You know, people like to talk about, well, are they getting these ideas from Locke or some other Enlightenment philosopher? Well, a lot of places the ideas are coming from, but what they understood to be their common law rights, the things that had been recognized for centuries as belonging to then Englishmen, that they thought these were being violated. And so I think that's a very important part of our history. Let me just back up for a moment here. There's a lot in these dissents talking about how undemocratic this is. Now, in a sense, I know what they're saying. In a sense, they're right. But let's think about this. It was a 5-4 vote of the Supreme Court. What if we had this open vote in all the United States? We're just going to let everyone vote. What do you think the vote would be on gay marriage right now? It'd probably be about 5-4 in favor. I mean, I think it'd be pretty close. I, there's a sense in which I think it's actually the vote in the Supreme Court is not wildly out of accord with what a Democratic vote would produce right now. That's simply to say that I think at the moment we might find some comfort in saying we need to let the legislators decide this, not the courts. But we need to remember that legislatures can do some very, very bad things as well. And we need to have a broader view of law than simply whatever legislatures say the law is. I think also there are some problematic elements to that in our broader legal tradition as well. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Were a number of legislatures, and I don't remember the exact number, but it seems like it was more than 30 prior to the decision that had made laws against same-sex marriage. So it's certainly the country is divided, and how one assesses the percentages is you know, obviously that's a difficult question. But you do raise a very interesting question, and maybe we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but there is strong language in the dissents against the majority. And some have said that some of the dissenting language is as strong as some of the dissenting language going back to Roe and Doe, those two decisions in 1973. What does the strength of that dissenting language, the criticisms that are made by the dissenting opinions, what does that signal about either the state of the court or the state of American life? What do we infer from that, if anything? One of the things that I think this strong language indicates is that there are some very big differences in the judiciary today as to how one reads law and especially how one reads 
constitutional law and the ideas of some of the fundamental rights that are in the Constitution. And in some ways, it reflects broader divisions in American society. I mean, you find coming out here in these dissents a lot of ideas and concerns that really go far beyond what is before the court specifically. I mean, these are broader calls for a certain kind of philosophy of judicial interpretation And you can even see here, there are warnings in the dissents about what the implications are going to be in terms of democratic governance, in terms of religious freedom. And I think you just have to recognize that these were not nine judges who basically were sharing most things in common and were having a very small disagreement about a narrow point of law. There are very fundamental things that are at stake. What do you think some of the ramifications may be? Do you have an opinion? Or is it too early? Well, it's impossible to predict with certainty, obviously, where things go. I think there are probably two areas of law that one can't help but wonder if they're going to be moving in a certain direction because of this. One is, how does marriage get redefined further? If you look at the majority opinion, it does speak very clearly about marriage being for two people. But when you look at the way that they come to their reasoning, there really is absolutely nothing that would prevent the same kind of rationale from being given in order to defend polygamy and other sorts of marriage arrangements. I mean, if marriage is really about defining your own concept of existence and the meaning of life, and if we're concerned about people who feel degraded because they can't marry in ways that satisfy their own sexual desires, then it's really hard to see why marriage law doesn't continue to further change. And then also, there are some major questions that this raises about religious freedom, and really beyond religious freedom, but how do those who don't agree with this decision, especially for those who maintain what is going to be defined as discriminatory practices with regard to homosexuality, how are things going to go for them? How is this going to affect Well, for one thing, private businesses, and we've already been seeing some of those. How is this going to affect religious institutions like colleges and seminaries and charities? And we've already been seeing some of that. And how is this going to affect churches? You know, how is this going to affect tax-exempt status and, I mean, all sorts of other things. And so it opens up all sorts of questions, and I'm not capable of predicting how that's going to go, but I think it's certain that these are going to be questions that we're all going to be wrestling with in the months and years to come. And some of the justices made some somewhat unsettling predictions, which is a little bit unusual. Usually the nature of the discussions between the justices as they're reflected in the opinions is sometimes heated, but usually fairly cordial and stayed restrained. But some of the language used in some of the dissents was quite strong and warning about serious potential consequences for liberty, particularly religious liberty. And in this regard, Justice Kennedy's language about religious liberty was really only a remark in passing and not very reassuring. Right. He said something to the effect that, of course, this ruling is not meant to prohibit religious people, religious institutions from continuing to advocate their views. And as at least one, maybe a couple of the dissents noted, is that what the Constitution actually protects is the free exercise of religion, not just the liberty just to have an opinion or to advocate an opinion, but actually involves the practicing of one's convictions. And it's become fairly widely accepted in a number of places that religious liberty really entails fundamentally a right to think certain things and in some circumstances to say certain things, but it's 
not universally understood that it entails a right to do certain things, to act on those convictions, which is a remarkable thing if you think about our history. I mean, even if you were a slave in a Roman prison, you could think what you wanted. That was not in question. You know, saying what you want, well, that's a relatively new thing in world history without being arrested or thrown in jail or what have you. But being able to act on those convictions was one of the reasons why people actually packed up, left England and Europe, and moved to this country. And yet that concept seems to be either weakening or, in some cases, one wonders if it's just not altogether forgotten. These two are complicated issues. You're certainly right in what you're saying. And I think a larger issue that we're going to be wrestling with as a society and as a judicial system is, is there something unique about religion over against having a philosophy or having a worldview? And because the Constitution protects the free exercise of religion, it is not protecting, in a sense, worldviews or philosophies. It really is recognizing that there's something special about religion. And when you understand the founding of the U.S., it's, you know, in many ways a collection of religious minorities from various countries in Europe. That's how it began. The protection of religion and the free exercise of religion was extremely important. But I think in a lot of American society today, and especially in elite circles, and judges tend to be in elite circles, there's not really an appreciation for the idea that religion may be something special, maybe something unique that requires some sort of recognition in law. And I think that's something I haven't seen as much written on this as on some other things, but I think that's going to be an important issue that's going to be fought about in the future. And increasingly, those decisions are going to be made by people, it seems, who have less and less personal experience with religious institutions. A hundred years ago, the mainline Christian denominations probably counted among them members of social, you know, elite institutions, the Senate, the court, and even the presidency of the United States occasionally. But when one looks at polls as to, you know, what the religious identity is of people in the Senate or people on the court or in other leading sort of shaping institutions, increasingly they have less and less experience. And so they're going to be ruling from their point of view about theory rather than practice, which is likely going to make the court an interesting laboratory. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.